Welcome to episode 555 with my guest Paulina Milana. I am Paul Gilmartin. You're listening to the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It is a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our heads. Past, present, future. The website for this show is metalpod.com. Also the social media handle you can follow me at. Um, I'm not a therapist. I know a lot of you in the first five seconds were like, that is the voice of a therapist. I'm going to trust him implicitly. No, no. I'm a jackass that tells dick jokes. Former TV host, former stand-up comedian, catastrophizer, nut job. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Mrs. Queen Bee. She asked, do you have any help on the business side of the podcast? Uh, I do. I do. I recently uh, hired a awesome woman named Brooke to uh, help me with some of this stuff um, because it was just, it does not take a lot for me to feel overwhelmed. And there was a lot of stuff that I was just not getting to because uh, either dread or fear or didn't have the energy to do it. And um, I decided to, um, budget some money to, uh, to hire somebody as a part-time producer, um, who designed and or maintains your website and all its features. A lovely guy by the name of, uh, Yanni, who is Finnish. And I don't remember how I found him, but he's great and, uh, and affordable. Who solicits and manages your advertising and Patreon account? Well, Brooke and I both kind of deal with the Patreon account, but as far as advertising, uh, there's an agency that I, I use uh, to to book those ads. Some of them I've booked myself. Uh, do you ever feel overwhelmed or burdened by the non-content-related technical side of running the podcast? The technical side, no. Um, being an amateur guitarist, I was familiar with editing software before I even started the podcast 10 years ago. So that I don't, but the business-related uh, stuff and uh, social media-related stuff, that I definitely feel uh, feel overwhelmed by. And uh, if you ever feel so inclined to donate to the podcast, that would help to defray. I think that might be the first time I've ever used the word defray. Uh, defray the costs and help with uh, the budget for keeping the show running you can do it through paypal or patreon all those links are on our uh, on our website this is an awful moment filled out by a guy who refers to himself as stone he writes i've been in the u.s army for 19 years three months and 17 days and today i was diagnosed with schizophrenia I've known for several years that I had my share of mental health challenges like physical injuries. Mental injuries are just a part of the job description. If you sprain your ankle, just stay off of it for a few days and you'll be fine. At most, I figured I had experienced some mild depression and maybe occasionally felt over-anxious about the day's duty. Sometimes you just wanted to sleep in a little or you just felt a little burned out and didn't want to go to work. It's fine. Everyone feels that way sometimes. Not once did I consider the possibility or seriousness of acute psychosis. It was my focus that began to slip first. I'd become incredibly forgetful and unable to concentrate long enough to accomplish meaningful work. 
I began to rely on my teammates and subordinates to carry out assigned tasks. But as a superior officer, that was the easy part. The hard part was remembering what projects had been assigned and to whom. While I was seemingly functional to my colleagues, by the time I returned home from each day's tour of duty, I would be so mentally exhausted that I could only zone out and stare at the wall while pretending to watch the news or listen to my wife or daughter tell me about their day. I was emotionally unavailable to them. In fact, I found even their presence to be overwhelming and I began to disconnect myself from their very existence. But it worked. Even though I was barely holding my personal life, family, and marriage together, I continued to get promoted and move up the ranks of responsibility. I even earned an appointment to warrant officer and received a commission. I'm not sure exactly when Tiffany and Aberdeen, uh, in parentheses, my imaginary cats, began to come around, but they provided comfort and a sense of being that, and then this is in caps, the woman in the window only wanted to steal. I could talk to them, and they could talk back through a sort of telepathy. They were especially helpful when the walls would mumble. The woman in the window, however, I could hear. Her voice was as audible as the heel of a boot that makes a thump as you walk down a hallway, sometimes clearly present and other times completely unnoticed. So this is where I find myself telling my story. Having been found unfit for duty, yet somehow relieved that the people around me are now aware of my hallucinations. Wow. Thank you so, so much for that. What a bittersweet situation to feel seen and heard, but to... Man. Sending you some love. I've experienced a lot of things, but that kind of psychosis, um, I mean, I, as I mentioned in, in, a, in a podcast uh, a couple of times, towards the end of my drinking, I would hear somebody calling my name when I would lay down to go to sleep. It sounded like somebody was in my backyard, but that's pretty, that's pretty mild to what you're talking about. Holy shit. Thank you for sharing that. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Same Old Beat Drummer Man. And he writes, It just happened again 40 minutes ago. My old friend of 30 years texted and asked me how I'm doing. I then had the same debate I've had with myself the last 8,000 times he's asked. Do I pretend that things are groovy? Or do I let him know that I'm back to the level of depression I had when my ex left me to chase a career in live cam porn? I so relate to not knowing how to answer how you doing. I don't think I have ever felt completely comfortable or confident in my answer to how I'm doing. Most of the time, I feel like I'm either minimizing or exaggerating. I suppose that's the mean voice in the head that's just like, oh, you're a fraud, you're a liar, you know etc. This is from the Fears survey filled out by Hot Mess Express, and she writes, Frogs. If I see a frog, I will change my route. I'm afraid that the reason I'm single is because I'm too crazy and that I'll end up alone forever. 
I'm afraid that I've made too many mistakes, which has given me too many bruises and scars. I'm afraid that I've gotten completely, that I haven't completely gotten out of my own way. I fear pushing people away because I get venomous when outraged, although working on it. I also push people away out of fear of abandonment. I fear I am unforgivable. I think, I think we remember Nat King Cole singing that. I fear everyone else has it easier than I do in my brain. I fear that if compared, I suck. See, that's what Hitler documentaries are for. You're feeling bad about yourself. Fire up a Hitler documentary. You will be like, I am awesome. I fear I will never get to go on vacation while everyone else gets to and what I want almost more than anything. I fear I have damaged my daughter in any way. I fear that I am actually a big damaged failure. Thank you for sharing that. And man, you are in your head. I think it would be so good to check out a support group because I think you would find probably by the end of your first meeting that you are not alone in that. And you might discover some tools to help you cope with that negative voice in your head because I have the feeling you, you know, while you still have struggles and yes, maybe you've hurt some people, you are not the monster the broken monster that you think you are. This is from the fear survey filled out by Pretzel, and she writes, I fear flying with my partner and our plane breaking up midair, having to know at that moment that he will die and that I will have to watch him die and that we will not be able to hold on to one another and we will have no more time to share with each other. Wow, that is so fucking graphic. But there's a chance that you might be able to see somebody die in first class before you, and that would make it all worth it. This is from the Love Survey, filled out by Katie Ann, and she writes, I've asked a lot of different people a lot of different times what they think the difference is between romantic and platonic love. Most people say something sexual or just a gut feeling, and so I've never gotten a satisfying answer until I asked my coworker a month ago. He said, it's the threshold for forgiveness. I can't stop thinking about it. That is an interesting one. The threshold for forgiveness. I assume he means it's... I assume he means that you're more forgiving of somebody you're romantically involved with than somebody you're platonically involved with. I would say that the difference is the size of the knife you would stab them with. We are, how's this for a segue? We are sponsored today by BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. If you have never tried online therapy, give it a shot. Why not do it from the comfort of your own home? They have tons of qualified therapists. They're available in all 50 states. Uh, just go to betterhelp.com slash mental, uh, fill out a questionnaire, and if they feel like they have a counselor who is a good fit for you, they will match you up with one, and you can experience 10% off your first month of counseling, and you need to be uh, over 18. Highly recommend it. 
And uh, finally, this is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls themselves D-I-Y, as in W-H-Y. I'm a very clumsy guy who loves DIY projects, so I always have my hands with cuts, burns, or scratches in different states of healing. I love watching how my body keeps working to put it back together. I just love how, no matter how clumsy I am, the skin always regenerates and the wound is gone, sometimes leaving a scar behind, sometimes not. I kind of wish I wasn't so prone to hurting my own hands, but I love to watch them heal. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lure. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. Let humans do this to each other. Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. <laughs> well... <laughs> I am here with Paulina Milana, uh, who is an author, and you grew up in some nuttiness. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. No. <laughs> yes, quite a bit of uh, madness. So actually, I think we're from the same place, like Chicago. That's right? my hometown. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if that uh, if that breeds it or what, but uh, <laughs> but um, but yeah, my. Uh, my upbringing, I like to say that insanity um, is rooted in my family tree, and I was tasked with tending its garden. So I was raised by a mom who went undiagnosed for a long time and then finally was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic um, and then became her primary caregiver and primary caregiver to my younger sister, who also became a paranoid schizophrenic. And at what age were you given these responsibilities? So when I was 10, pretty much, is when it started with my mom. And being from a Sicilian family, uh, there's there's pride in kind of being called the little mother. And my father would call me la piccola mamma. So all of the duties that my mom, you know, the typical mom duties that she couldn't get to at 10, I just started to assume them, take them over. Then my... For for instance, and, and both your yeah. uh, parents are originally from Sicily? Both my parents are originally from Sicily. So, you know, English, not first language. Um, they, my father basically was a barber. We didn't have health insurance. Um, my mother uh, was commissioned to come to the U.S., by uh, Enrico Pucci, um, her her talent in seamstress uh, and and dressmaking was phenomenal, um, super talented. When they came here, they immediately started having children. There was four of us, and my mom had her little sewing business. It was actually quite a happy little family. Um, very traditional Sicilian roles. Um, family comes first. Family comes first. <laughs> family. Yeah. 
Ah. Just adjusting your mic Adjust so I can your see eye. your face. <laughs> oh, okay. That's yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was because uh, my voice is too booming loud. No, no. Um, so uh, family comes first, very much so. But also in the Sicilian kind of um, family, it's uh, la cosa nostra. So what happens in the family stays in the family. So there was this unwritten code of silence. You know, we took mm-hmm. care of our own. When my uh, we had a, an uncle who lived with us, Uncle Joe loved him, and he was my mom's older brother, and he wasn't married or anything. My mom got to the point where she didn't want him in the house anymore, simply because, you know, you have your Sicilian husband who's kind of what you got to do, and you've got four kids, and you don't drive, you don't speak the language. And then she had her brother also kind of telling her what to do. And then the two men would kind of argue, right, mm-hmm. at times. So she wanted him gone. On the night uh, before he was to leave, you know, my, my father had told him, you know, you just got to go. And uh, my Uncle Joe died of a heart attack. And my mother spiraled into a depression. And in those days, nobody talked about it. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew what was really going on. We think that that is what sparked the schizophrenia, those symptoms. Mm-hmm. And and from that point on, you know, I was um, I was about six or seven. And from that point on, she started seeing things. Um, she started hearing things. She And, and she blamed herself for his well, death or she never came out and said it, but um, but during the funeral, you know, it's 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 often um, made fun of in TV and, and film, that whole Sicilian kind of weeping, wailing, crying, throwing and trying yourself to get, on the coffin. And she did. She yeah. threw herself into the coffin. Um, so uh, she and she would. I remember her. You know, I was a little kid, but I remember her saying, "This isn't how I wanted it." And so I'm sure she blamed herself all all through. You know what was happening, what was coming. She didn't even understand it. Um, I was a pretty uh, adventurous little um, shit, <laughs> and uh, and you know I, I was my father's favorite even as a little little girl, and um, and my mom kind of uh, decided that I I was the target. I was a bit of the evil kind of spawn. So I um, I, I I got a lot of her. Rage, a lot of her, uh, you know, I grew up. Was this before uh, the illness presented itself? No, um, this was before the diagnosis. So, so my father uh, took her everywhere. Um, every physical doctor that you could think of, because in those days, it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the first thing that you even kind of think of, right? Mm-hmm. Um so my mom even had a couple of um, exploratory brain surgeries because they were convinced it was something physical. Then my dad took her to the Mayo Clinic. And at the Mayo Clinic, um, I remember him coming home just confused as hell because he said, you know, they told me, you know, Mr. Milana, your your wife's problem is not physical. She has schizophrenia. And that just snowballed into, you know, A, we couldn't tell anybody because mm-hmm. in those days, the only thing on TV was, um, you know, I, I'm sure you remember the movie Sybil. Yeah. Uh, that was pretty much it, right? So mm-hmm. if you had a mental illness, that's where you were. Um, and so we, we didn't tell anybody. Uh, 
we just kept going more and more into debt because of all the medications and the bills. My father ended up just continuously selling things. But to the outside world, nobody really knew anything that was going on wrong. And and to my father's credit, he, you know, he could have left. He could have done a bunch of things. He stayed and he stayed always with a a, a sense of um of joy, a sense of finding, you know, like I like to say, finding the magic in the little things, you know. So it's not like That's everything amazing. was doom and gloom. It was it was totally amazing. It was because my mom, you know, my mom would stay up all night and scream and rant and rave. Um, she would turn the knobs on the um, on the stove and talk about blowing us all up. And she had knives and baseball bats under their bed, um, threatening him. And then in the morning, we all just went to school. And, you know, as if this was just normal. And you didn't sleep a wink. And, and the only thing that I knew I could control were my grades at that time. So I was, you know, the A student and, you know, and nobody would have known really anything going on other than I eat. That's my coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. And so little by little, I was gaining weight, gaining weight, gaining weight. Um, so that was kind of my my entire upbringing. I had some other challenges. Be because we needed money, I started working. I, I forged my birth certificate when I was 13 because I always looked older. And I started working at a donut shop um, when I was 13. And I, you know, and at at that age, you kind of, especially growing up as treated as an adult almost, right? Mm -hmm. The things that I was taking care of and you think you're smarter than you really are and that you mm -hmm. can handle more things. Yeah. And, and you don't know how inappropriate it is for that load to be given to you. You yeah. don't realize that you're missing out on a part of your emotional growth, that your exactly. innocence has been shattered. No. No, as a matter of fact, you feel, at least I, feel super powerful. I did. Right? I did as well, too, when yeah. I became my mom's therapist at seven years old. Exactly. You know, I was like, oh, I'm smart. Right. <laughs> right, yeah. right. And you get more love, you know, mm -hmm. however you want to kind of look at it um but my you know I, I feel bad because my father tried to do whatever he could and you know every, everybody's kind of doing the best that they can right mm -hmm. in that moment not to excuse anybody um and i feel horrible for my mother especially now with the second book and the things uncovered there but when i was at the donut shop uh you know there was a police officer I was, what, 26 years my senior, um, and, you know, my father had asked him to keep his eye out for me, and he took that to the extreme. It's it's hard for me to even kind of compute that, because at the age of 14, I was into it. Do you know what I mean? But it, Which is super common. Super right. common. Kids right. will... When their needs aren't being met at home, they will accept um, any form of love often and mm -hmm. attention. And mm -hmm. you think, you know, I must be really special that mm -hmm. this person that much older than me is. Mm -hmm. And they know how to groom. They know, oh, yeah. they know how to tell you all the things that they think that child, mm -hmm. you know, wants to hear. Mm -hmm. So he was 40. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting because he um, 
So when he was 39, he kept talking about his 40th birthday and the birthday gift that he wanted kind of thing. And, you know, I was, I wasn't an idiot. I knew what he meant. And, and in me, I was like, no, wait, wait, this is supposed to be like my second dad, like the guy who watches out for me, not, not all of this. Right. So something in me, I knew, um, I remember, uh, trying to figure out a gift for him. Um, that would separate us. And uh, I remember finding a birthday card and the birthday card, you know, because it was a donut shop. Mm -hmm. The birthday card had a donut on the cover and it was like a bite was taken out of it and the jelly was oozing out. And it said something like um, uh, the best part of uh, the best part of life is in the middle. Happy 40th, you know, something like that. And I, I purposely wanted it because it really underscored your 40, you know what I mean? It right. tied in the, and I thought, oh, perfect. You know, this will be platonic. Great. Um, and be- yet, because he wanted sex with you for his well, 40th? here's the thing. He, leading up to all of it, he would come and sit with me late nights. Um, I, he, he often ended up taking me home because my dad couldn't come and get me. Um, he, you know, he did something really kind of, um, it, it it's it's tough to talk about because it it really uh got me um it was major sexual awareness for me and and what he would do is now I still remember the first night he came in to do it he he crossed over the line into the the area that I'm in you know and I was all alone and um and at this point I'm I'm still 13 and he he had cat hair all over his uniform. And he said, uh, uh, could you help me with my pussy problem? And I I don't even know, to be honest with you, if I even kind of knew what the hell, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. like that all meant. So I was kind of like, okay. And he took my hands and he took the tape dispenser that you um, mm-hmm. used to close the boxes and he wrapped it around both hands backwards so that the sticky side was on mm-hmm. the hands and then he took my hands and used them to stroke his whole body to get the cat hair off mm-hmm. that's how it started um and then that night and, and what did you think and feel in that moment if you can remember and you're comfortable talking about no it? well you know what this so all of this is the first book the s word um which is a memoir about secrets what did i feel honestly there there was that feeling of a bit I kind of I know this is wrong and my mother is right about how bad I am but there's that other feeling where you're getting wet you're getting turned on you're you're thinking this is you know at that time when when I was I don't know 10 or 11 I um I snuck away with friends to go see the movie Rocky the first movie Rocky and if you remember in the first movie, Rocky, there's a scene where um, Adrian, he, they are in his place, and he's got that like wife beater T-shirt on, and he puts his arms over the bar, and he says to her, "I'm going to kiss you. Um, you don't have to kiss me back." But and then he moves in on her while she's moving back. At the end of that, obviously they've had sex, and she's completely transformed, right, into this beautiful kind of lady. To me, that 
was what happened. That's what was going to happen. That's not what happened. Um, and so that night when he comes in um, and it was it was his birthday, I was like, oh, I've got something for you. I was, you know, kind of trying to be super excited, but I didn't want what was going to happen. And he, I remember he just kind of was pretty pissed off. Like he devoured the donut that I had put a candle in. Mm -hmm. um, and then he just pushed me into the back room. The the odd part is, and then this is the other challenging part, I I wasn't, because I think on that night I was afraid, I wasn't um, prepared or ready to take anybody in. And I I think he was upset about it to where he tried. It couldn't happen. Somebody came in in the front. Mm-hmm. So, and that's why, you know, it's a struggle for me to even say, was it rape? Was it not rape? Was it a uh, a relationship that was super inappropriate and here we were and this is what happened? I, I to this day, it's super hard to balance it because, yeah, I was 14, but I, it's, you know. Here's the question. <laughs> And it's so common, and I, I I have gone even though the details uh, of our experiences are different. Uh, I and a lot of survivors struggle with the very same thing. And I had a therapist once tell me that she has clients whose parents use them in BDSM pornography when they were children, and they say the same thing. Wow. So. What I like to say when somebody is opening up and they're hemming and hawing about, you know, is it validly, you know, this or that, as I say, what would you tell your child? Oh, wholly inappropriate. It, it wasn't you. It, the onus is on the adult who's right. supposed to know better, right? right. The authority figure, right? Mm -hmm. Especially, ironically, a cop, right? right. And so what, what even complicated it more <laughs> was... Uh, I was fully going to tell my dad what happened, right? And and of course in in your mind you're like, okay, well what if he what if he does something? Then he goes to jail. Then what happens? Like there was all this kind of other stuff going on in my head. That night, my father asks me to ask the cop if he would help us trick my mom to committing her to getting her into the hospital. So I was like, great. Now what? Do you know what I mean? And and it took me a little while, but I did it, uh, and never, never told anybody. And and that's when a lot of the um, of the bigger weight issues just kept coming on because that was my protection yeah. mechanism, right? So, so then my mom, you know, she was uh, committed, and you know, my mother was super smart, super smart woman, and we, you know, when someone is committed. Um, they go to the quiet room, basically, and, you know, it's usually policy for a couple of weeks. You don't get mm -hmm. to see them, right, while they're trying to figure right. things out with people. I was like, hallelujah. Like, it's I thank God, keep her. Like, I could have cared less at that point. Um, my mom, 
we went to visit her and on the first night that we were able to, and we walked in, and I remember them saying something like, um, oh, well, your mother's uh, doing the cooking classes or whatever. And uh, and I thought, my mom, what? I Like, she's being social? Like, I don't get it. Because she thought, she was a paranoid schizophrenic who thought everybody was going to kill her, especially mm-hmm. us. Right. So it was like, kill or be killed. So we walk in, she's saying stuff to other people, and next thing you know, she disappears. Like she escaped from the hospital, something no one had ever done before. The whole hospital goes into this uproar, we'll find her, whatever, and I'm thinking, uh, keep her, whatever. Mm-hmm. At the end of the night, my dad, we had been driving around um, Hyde Park, where mm-hmm. the um, hospital was, and uh, and I noticed that my dad was circling the same uh, blocks. And my dad was like a human GPS. He knew where to go, when, right? It it gave me comfort, right? No matter what, he knew the way. And he stops and he says, uh, ma bambini, dove siamo? Which is, kids, where are we? I lost my shit. I, and I, I never cried. Like even my older sister turned to me and said, oh my God, you're crying? I thought you were a robot. Because I was, wow. you know what I mean? That was like the first time. And I lost it because... Here was the guy that was keeping the glue, all of us together. If he lost his way, now what? What does that mean for us, right? We were doomed. So time progresses. Well, that night, actually, we get home, and who the fuck is home but my mother? And she is sitting in a corner of the living room looking pissed like... I just, I really thought that night we were done. It was, mm-hmm. this is how we were going to go. Um, we didn't. <clears throat> and and then comes the point where I'm, I'm done. And my mom, you know, I always kind of made her coffee in the morning. And I, I, I won't say that I, you know, premeditated anything. But she had, you know, uh, cabinets full of all her meds. Um, and I don't know what. I was even thinking if I was thinking anything, but I took the meds and thought to myself, I could just mix them all up, give her enough, and do everybody a favor and get mm-hmm. rid of her. Um, what I didn't know is that while I was doing that, she was standing behind me watching me. And then when I turned around, she she reached out to take the fucking cup. Then I thought to myself, Oh my God. Like, you know what I mean? She knows what's going on here and she's, she's, she loves me enough to want to take it and do herself in what it was such fucked up thinking at this point. And I leave and I remember her just, I remember her eyes and I remember her calling out after me. I stay at school as long as I can. I come home and everything is pristine. Like this, the meds are, put away like everything is clean and i think okay you know what i mean i'm just gonna pretend like nothing happened and and my dad comes home from work and uh he calls up to my mom because usually like dinner was there at least and that's when i see my dad's eyes and he's looking up the stairs and my mom had come out of the room and she had attempted to kill herself he ambulance, et cetera. My little sister at that time 
you know, and nobody really even noticed how much she was falling through the cracks because all of this was going Your on. Your little sister? My little sister. Right. Um, and so my little sister, I just remember seeing her and she immediately went back into the room and all I could think was, holy shit, this is my fault. Like, you know what I mean? This is me. Never told a soul. My mother never told a soul. And Wow, that is such a fucked weight. up. <laughs> such a weight for a kid. I mean, on top of all the other stuff, you know, when you were in that moment, if you could go back, the adult you could go back and talk to young you, what would you say? Honestly, okay, so the person I am today would say to that kid, I know you don't get it right now, but this is how it's meant to be. I, you know, you're not, you're not at fault. You're not, you're not to be blamed. You're not to hate yourself. Your mother doesn't hate you. This is you know, if, if you believe anything of soul contracts and stuff, I I would tell that kid to hang on because there is a bigger purpose in all of this. Um and and it's it's all gonna be okay. I and I know that's I mean, I hear myself saying that and I'm like, that's kinda stupid because the kid would probably look at me and be like, Are you fucking nuts? <laughs> like I I'm um She would present you with a big bowl totally. of pills. <laughs> Exactly. Right. Exactly. I, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, if, if I would love to know what would you have said to the little me back then? Because I, there are times I think I would have said the same thing. Really? Yeah. That makes me feel a lot better. There, there are times when I really think to myself, like I even reread my stuff yeah. and I'm like, fuck, did that really happen? Like, yeah. right. Even, you know, the first book, Social Trolls came out and said, uh, oh, your father should have gone to uh, um, prison and DCFS should have been called and all this stuff. And I, I feel like there are so many people so quick to say what they would do or what you should have done or whatever. Not the, you, you haven't walked in those shoes. You have and no idea. And it was a idea. different time, not, different not to time. make excuses for him, but couple that with the fact that he comes from Sicilian culture, right? you know, which right. as you mentioned, the secrets, right. families, yeah. everything. Right. Um, right. And you know, the other thing I think I would have said to your younger self is, find someone to talk to right this this you deserve to, to have your mm -hmm. pain mm -hmm. validated mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. what you're going through is horrifying mm -hmm. and it will it will help you mm -hmm. i i wish that there were people to talk to because my experience back then um you know i uh my father had put me in piano lessons, uh, and it was a nun, and um, she was notorious for being pretty tough, and we couldn't afford it anymore. I loved piano, but we just couldn't afford it anymore. And I remember walking in and saying to her sister, I won't mention her name, <laughs> I'm sure she's not alive anymore, but you never know. <laughs> so um, I was like, sister, you know, I'm really sorry, but 
this is going to have to be the last session because we just, I didn't even like get the words out of my mouth. And she grabbed me by my um, shirt collar, my uniform collar, threw me out into the hall against the lockers and said, uh, Ms. Milana, you're going to learn one day that the world doesn't revolve around you. And I was like, what? Like, what? Then I went to the dean to complain and say, this is, you know, this is wrong. Like, and the dean said, what do you want me to do? And then referenced how behind we were in our uh, tuition bills. And I was like, oh, so <laughs> that's how this works. Um, just a bunch of other things. In the, I remember in the fourth grade, because I was taking care of myself and mm -hmm. siblings. In the fourth grade, I remember um, I, I couldn't. I couldn't do what I was supposed to do. And, and usually your mother would call and like, well, I found the phone number of my fourth grade teacher and I called her. I said, hi, this is Paulina. I just need you to know that we've had some issues. So I won't be able to, whatever it was, I don't even remember. What I remember was the next day. And when I came into class, she hauled me out into the hall and said, if you ever call me at home again, blah, blah. And I was... So so it was sort of like the authority figures. I even tried to go to church. You know, we were church people. I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I just dumbfounded at how many, even back then, mm -hmm. how many adults in a row failed you. Yeah. It's, it's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Jaw-dropping. Well, you know, the, the biggest, I mean, other than the cop, um, the biggest one was I, so my, my hours at the donut shop were Saturday from three to 11. And then Sunday morning from like seven until three. And church is either Saturday night or Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. And I remember one time I got to go to church and it was after what happened with the cop. And I, I just wanted to tell somebody like and then pretend it never happened. Right. Mm -hmm. So I remember going to the confessional and uh, the guys, this was the like the oldest priest in, in the church. And uh and I start to do the whole sin thing. You know, it's been so long since my last mm -hmm. confession, blah, blah, blah. And I go through the simple ones. And I say, I haven't been to church in whatever I said. And I'm about to like the big thing, you know. And, and uh, Father says, um, why weren't you in church? Why haven't you been in church? I'm like, well, Father, you know, I work and told him the whole story. I can't make it. And he goes, promise me that next weekend you will be here. And I said, but... Father, I, I know I'm on the schedule. I can't promise you I'd be lying. Promise me. And that motherfucker, excuse me, mm. wouldn't absolve me of my sins because of that. And I just, that was bad. I told myself I was not going to cry. <laughs> but it's tough when you go back and you just remember that. And that was the last, that was sort of like for me, all right, I have tried teachers. This is the freaking priest. Okay, this is it. This is me. You know what I mean? On my own. So that is basically that first book, The S Word, Bad Enough to Have Your Mom, who's like this. Then... What did things end with the the cop that night, or did was he still lurking? <laughs> lurking. Okay, want to know? Okay, we'll 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 continue to tiptoe into fucked up land with me okay. Okay. because while he, I think, I don't know if he realized 
what in the world? And I think it embarrassed him so much that I had to ask him to help commit my mom. I think he just, he didn't disappear because his partner, like they kept coming in for donuts and coffee and whatever, but he always stayed in the car. And me, I, all I wanted was for him to come in and say, you know what I mean? I'm sorry. I'm sorry I wasn't what I was supposed to be. Let's, you know, try it again. I thought I was the at failure. fault. Yes, the failure. Big time. Yeah. But he never, uh, he never, again, I, I did see him one other time. Um, I became, uh, I don't know, I, I became sort of just, I don't give a shit, kind of. And I knew we needed money. So I started stealing and um, like cash out of the cash register, you know, when people would pay for their donuts, I'd just pocket it. I mean, in all fairness, in my defense, <laughs> the other woman who worked with me, she showed me how. Um, and so I I ended up getting caught and the donut shop owner called the cops and he shows up and he's the one who took me. And he made it go away, and that was it. And I never got prosecuted. I never heard from the donut shop people anymore. I just, nothing. And again, another secret. So it was just sort of wow. on top of everything. Yeah, I know. Wow. And you're Catholic <laughs> on top of all of that. Holy And I'm fuck. Catholic on top of So everything gets magnified by a it power does. of 10. <laughs> It oh does. my god. It does it does it it's does. It's so awesome that you can laugh about it <laughs> now. I mean, what what freedom mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. have a perspective on this and mm -hmm. to look back and see that yeah, it sucks. No child should ever have to go through that. But you made the most of your forced gym membership for mm -hmm. your soul. <laughs> and and you're able to share your experience as an author. Mm -hmm and friend, I imagine, mm -hmm. uh, with mm -hmm. other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, my, so when the first book came out, The S Word, I was in 2015, my older sister, she was okay with the manuscript before it got a publisher. And then when it got published, uh, has not really spoken to me. And, you know, I also have a brother, um, and then my younger sister, who also passed. And, you know, that that made me doubt whether I should have even done it, right? Um, but that book, and then this one especially, so the second one is called Committed, A Memoir of Madness in the Family. This book, um, I, I get to the point where I know that I am either going to hurt myself hurt somebody hurt the whole family something is going to go wrong if i don't get the hell out of there and i you mean physically physically emotionally? physically okay. if i didn't get out of that household i i was afraid of myself you know i already had tried with my and, mom once and, and and how long ago was this when uh let's see 1985 okay okay so in 1985 I get the opportunity to go to Iowa State University. I only have enough money for a year, um, but I just I gotta go. I I don't even I don't even care. Like I, I don't care about anything. 
I I go and is that the one that has the great writing program or is that no, Iowa? No, that's the other one. That's okay. the other one. See, I mean, and that's just it. I it's not like I had anybody to like show me mm-hmm. what was possible, what could be done. And honestly, while I had always been journaling, I never put two and two together that writing was a thing. Like right. I just thought everybody did it, right? So I go to I was actually the weekend before we're, um, my father was going to take me to Iowa State, my friends take me to this famous um, place called, you may remember it, in Water Tower. It was called D.B. Kaplan's. Do you oh, remember yeah. that place? Okay. The hamburger place, right? Yeah. Well, a hamburger and then all sorts of sandwiches named yes. after famous people. Right. Okay. So we're all there having a great time. They're like, oh, you finally you know, get to go. They had already had gone away, right? And that night... We all ended up with salmonella poisoning in the hospital, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're laughing, and I'm like, God, you know what I mean? Like, what right. more can happen, right? Because then I was missing my orientation, like all this stuff. Right. Well, we do end up going, and we're so late that they stick me in a kitchenette. Like, I don't even get a, a dorm room. And the only thing I say at that point is, you know what? All right, God, you know, I'm here, you know. I'm just asking you, please don't, don't, you know, I'll take any kind of a roommate. Just please don't make her a jock, right? Because I was overweight. I was, I just didn't want a jock. I kid you not. It was as if it was like some kind of a sitcom. Door opens. She's a fucking jock. Not, not a weekend warrior, a real deal, right? right? And I was like, oh my God. I mean, now we're the best of friends and stuff. But so that whole first year, all I want to do, because all I got is enough money, maybe for a year. All I want to do is pretend I don't have that family at all. And what happens in that year, and this is the first part of committed, the first part is that one year. What happens throughout that entire year, my parents, my siblings, everybody and their brother keeps writing me letters of telling me what's going on, like pulling me back in mm-hmm. when I I don't, I want them to disappear. So I... I I deal with my one year, and in that one year, I am so grateful because that's when I meet Lee Hadley Irwin, and she's she was a published author. She had a similar situation uh, and wrote about it in terms of a um, a father daughter incest kind of thing. Not that mine was my dad. Um, she 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 was the first one who even said to me, like I, I actually will remember. I was in that class, didn't think I belonged in that class. I thought everybody else knew more than me. And she she sent us out and said, all right, what I want you guys to do is write a story, um, not about your own gender, but pretend you're the opposite gender. Just a little short story. I don't care what it's about. Just write it. I go off. I write this story called um, It Ain't Worth It about a boy in a laundromat who meets a girl. And it's just a, a silly story, right? Come back. I I remember every moment when I was sitting there and all I could I, I remember doodling and writing down how I was gonna pay for whatever that week or like panicking a little bit about that. And I hear her say, Now all of you did a great job, you know what I mean, on your stories, but one really knocked it out of the park. And suddenly I hear my story. She's reading my story and I I remember, you know, when you smile so like broadly that you're literally like, okay, I got to brain it in because people are going to think I'm like kind of cuckoo. I remember that feeling. And then later on, she's the one who said to me, Pauline, I I don't say this to too many people, but 
you were meant to write, and I hope that is what you do. Don't get distracted, you know, kind of thing. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was it was awesome. And then I met, you know, other friends who, like I have a friend um, named Shelly and Dr. Mack. They were uh, in a media law class I took, and Dr. Mack was big and physically boisterous, big. physically big, and um, just like a bulldozer with a heart, right? Like, I mean, she, you know, one of the, my first introduction to her, she kind of went around the room and she was like, um, okay, everyone, uh, so let's just say, remember this is Iowa, she says, let's just say that you buy a heifer and a couple weeks down the road, that heifer gives birth. What does that mean? Like, again, it's like a law class, right? And she points to me and I'm literally like, I'm sorry, Dr. Mack, I don't know what a heifer is. I had no flipping... Mm. Do you know what a heifer is? It's a, I do. A virgin but cow, I'm, okay. I'm also in my 50s. <laughs> okay, so. all right. That's true. At that age, right. I had no idea. So that kind of started this relationship with her, with my friend Shelly, that A, it was okay to not know. It was okay to um, to be part of like just everybody laughing and having a good time. Mm-hmm. It was okay to be big and boisterous, and and it was okay to like sex. I mean, my friend Shelly, she not that she was promiscuous or anything, but she was normal, and she was kind of like taking me through. Well, why would you even want to wait until you're married? And I'm like, well, because Catholic, blah, you know that whole mm-hmm. thing. And and Dr. Mack was very, you know, she would come in sometimes in class. And she had a husband and you could tell like they were very affectionate. And I don't know, it just gave me a whole different worldview. Um, and then at the very end of my one year, I had to go back. And of all things, I mean, talk about how the universe works. I didn't have enough money to pay my bill and they weren't going to give me my grades. I wouldn't be able to go on like at home to a different college and I remember taking that walk to the financial aid office on the last day that I could pay and thinking to myself, you're a fucking idiot. You know what I mean? What did you do? Like, you came here. Like, what an idiot. Now you've got even more bills. How are you going to tell your dad? Like, what's all this stuff? And I stopped at the uh, mailboxes on my way there and opened up my mail while I was walking, only to find that there was a class action lawsuit with D.B. Kaplan's, and I got a check for the amount of my tuition and a little bit extra. And it was it was like, I don't know, it, it made me feel in that moment as if somebody's watching out for me. Somebody like, I'm gonna be okay, it's all right. Now, do those moments last when you're thinking you're all gonna, sure. no. Yeah, <laughs> sure, <laughs> yeah, right, you're laughing. So, so anyway, so that was my one year. The second part of the book, I come home and I am, I just can't like stick around anymore. I mean, I love my father. My older siblings are now out of the house. I I can't I can't. I got to watch out for myself. And on like right before I was ready to tell him I'm moving out, you know, I started looking at places. Uh all of a sudden he just unexpectedly dies of a heart attack. And at that moment my mom is still ill. I can't leave and my little sister she is um, borderline, uh, you know, in those days, they were called borderline retarded. Mm-hmm. She was just normal enough, quote unquote, to be in 
classes with other kids, but couldn't keep up on anything. Right. So they just kept passing her on. She never learned anything. And then she was bullied mercilessly, kids poking her with pencils, just horrific things for this kid. But nobody's watching. Nobody's paying attention, right? She's on her own, too. So so I had my mom, my sister. Now I realize I got to at least stick around. You know, I'll, I'll give it another year. I'll, You know what I mean? I'll do what I got to do. So it's two, I'm 26. Uh, my father died. I was 24, I think 25. And for the first time, I decide I am going to go on a vacation with a friend. And we go on a cruise. And on that cruise, you know, I mean, you've been on a cruise. It's basically booze and just messing around and, and being up all night. And and I was like... And food poisoning. Food poisoning. <laughs> really? Is that what happened You're to You're looking you? to get another check, right? Yeah, <laughs> go on <right>. a cruise. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I... I Cruising for me then, I mean, seeing all those places and not having like, every, you know, they take you where you got to go, right? There was no thought. I had no decisions to be made. And it's like the perfect vacation for, for <laughs> you at that time. You know? Absolutely. Right. I, you know, the doctor is closed, right? I just, I just yeah. didn't want to take care of anything. So, um, and God bless the friend that I went with because I was pro I was I was actually a big shit you know what I mean because now I wanted to do what I wanted to do and I don't care about you and so I just I probably wasn't the greatest companion um but when we get home I I just thought to myself so that's what you know being an adult and being out in it I'm okay I can handle anything and I can't I was looking forward to seeing my mom and my sister I had presents for them I I had stories right I I I was on such a high and I remember coming into the driveway and seeing my mother in the doorway and uh actually first in the window then she came down in the doorway and that look in her eyes was that same look like when my uncle Joe had died like that that massive fear the the de like the the she had such black eyes like i and i just thought to myself what the hell and when i met with her uh at the door she said uh, uh paola siamo mezzi guai which means we're in the middle of trouble and i was like what do you mean trouble and she was like, greedy tutta la notte, which means screaming all night. And I'm like, who the fuck is screaming? I don't understand. And then at the top of the stairs appears my little sister. And she's like, Polly, you're not going to believe what happened. And I'm like, what? And she's like, I'm getting married. And I'm like, married? What are you talking about? And she's like, what do you mean? You don't think I can get married? And, like, and, and I was like, like, m m my brain wouldn't process fast enough what was happening right and there was that part in me that was like this can't fucking be happening again like this is mm -hmm. something's wrong so she's screaming at the top and my mom's just like no Vinny, you know that's not true and she would scream at my mom and i mean like a scream of um like the banshee kind of scream like just mm -hmm. And then she kind of disappeared. And I'm like, Ma, what happened? And so she starts to explain to me how all night long she's been up. The very same stuff that my mother did, she was doing. The and paranoia, the, the thinking the paranoia, people were out to get her. Thinking exactly, right? Thinking everyone was trying to stop her from 
um, from being herself. Uh, she, she just, it, I did think to myself, and this is horrible, but I did think to myself for the briefest moment, now, mom, you know what it was like for us. You know what I mean? I mean, really, right? right? right. And I and thought then, you were going to say, now they can kill each other. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> that would have been. No. But, but at the same time, I felt kind of bad for my mom because it was like, wow, now not only do you see it in your daughter that obviously you passed it on, but now you have full realization of what you put us through, like how horrible even for her, right? And that was later on when I came to that. But so my little sister is upstairs and I hear screaming on, she's screaming to someone and she's saying, no, you put him on. He's my fiance. And just... And so I go and take the other phone, the extension, way before cell phones, and I hear an elderly sounding guy, and he says, uh, I am calling the police. If you don't stop harassing my son, blah, blah, all this stuff, and she's saying, I'm just mm-hmm. crazy. And I chime in, and I'm like, sir, I'm, I'm sorry. I think there's something wrong. And she's like, there's nothing wrong with me. Big, big fight. At the end of the day, she comes at me. And I literally thought to myself, this is it. Like, this is how this is going to end. She's going to kill me. She was she was so not her. It was like mm-hmm. possessed. And then she runs away. At that moment, I call my brother. He happens to just come. We're in the car. And he says, what's going on? And I say, it's the same thing as mom. And he is like, you're exaggerating. You're making this up. Like, because how, like, it doesn't compute like twice. You know what I mean? Why? We get her. We She goes back into the quiet room, all this stuff. Well, everything snowballs. My two older siblings are trying to live their life. I'm there, right? They're not there. They don't even and, really and, know. And is your mom taking her medication at, at this point? Or is she going on it and off it? And... She's she's an on and off. It's yeah. a, on Monday if the moon is, is right. And right. you know what I mean? Off on okay. Tuesday. My brother said to her um, after my father died, let's get something straight. I'm not dad. If you don't take your meds, immediately I'm putting you in somewhere. So like get this straight. That works for a while, but, but you know, this is how I equate it. When I go to the doc and they give you meds and they say to you, all right, take them until they're all gone. Let's say there's 12 in the bottle. I'll take it to like number 10 cause, and then I'm feeling great and I don't take it. So right. why am I so different than, than they are, right? They start to feel better and, and why would they want to take it anymore, right? I mean, I mean, obviously they need to take it because it helps. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think I, all I'm saying is I probably, if I were in the same shoes, probably would do the same thing. You yeah. know what I mean? So. And for some of them, especially from what I understand with the medicine for schizophrenia, is it, it causes really bad uh, feelings of being uh, lethargic, yeah. uh, oh of being God. cloudy, oh gaining a lot of weight. Yep. And for yeah. some some people, um, they would rather yeah. live life without it. And right. boy, does that bring up a complicated Yep. question yeah. you know and, yeah. and i think that's where the 5150 rule is about involuntary commitment which is the qualifications are that you are either a danger to yourself or or someone else right, uh, right. it's so complicated it is complicated and it's really hard when you know at that time they were they had just started like with hipaa laws and stuff mm-hmm. 
very hard when you are trying to help, right? And and you know what could happen, right? I mean, I always love how, um, and, I, and I don't, I don't mean love, but mm-hmm. you know, you see some some tragedy happen unfold, and immediately I always listen for the they had a mental illness, right, or they were schizophrenic sure. or something, and the next thing is, well, I either they. They survey the neighborhood and everybody's like, oh, he was such a nice guy or, oh, or, you know, we had no idea. And then and then there's inevitably the questions of, well, didn't the parents know? Like, why didn't you do something more? What's wrong with you? It's not that black and white. It's not that simple, right, across the board. So and in this case, you know, I my life had become one of obligation, period, end of sentence. There was. um I mean, in the workplace, I was fully functioning, you know what I mean? I, I performed, but I I slowly, you know, I liken it to a cancer. Like, it was just slowly eating me up and mm-hmm. every day going home to that, pretending during the day, mm-hmm. right? Then going home to the two of them. It was too much for me. And I had gotten it into my head that, okay, you know what? There, There's clearly... There's clearly a purpose for me. I think my purpose is I'm supposed to alleviate the world of them. And the only thing that's fair is that I go with them. That was how fucked up I had gotten. And I had decided on a certain night that, you know, I I remembered my mom threatening to blow us up. And I thought, well, how hard can that be? You know what I mean? Like you put mm-hmm. the gas on, it will just blow it up. Nobody will it'll be a mistake. You know, that's what they'll think. And I, at the time I was working, I was a, um, I was working for a newspaper, the Daily Herald newspaper, and uh, I wrote feature stories and, and I also did um, copywriting and I was doing a, um, a barter for a woman who owned a women's club and they had a, um, a jacuzzi in the women's club. Not that I would ever go and wait, work out, mm-hmm. but I was so big at that point that that jacuzzi was the only place where I felt light like I felt you know what I mean no so heavy and I remember going that night with the intent that when I went home I was going to take us all out and I was in the jacuzzi and the uh the woman who owned it her name was Margie and um and she came by and she said uh, Paulina you know we're closing up I, are you okay you don't she saw something and I my standard answer was nothing's wrong. Like that was just what mm-hmm. I would say to everybody. And she I'm was just like, taking a pre-explosion jacuzzi. <laughs> What's your problem? <laughs> that was the best soak I ever had. Yeah. I mean, think about it. You're thinking, oh, it's over. I don't have to worry about anything sure. anymore. It was awesome. So, so Margie uh, convinced me to talk with her for a few moments. And of course, people pleaser that I was, I was like, okay, all right, tick tock, but I only got a couple minutes. I don't want Margie mad at me, even though I'm going to be dead you know what? by midnight. <laughs> I swear, that's what was going on in my mind. Like, I, I didn't want that on top of everything else. And so then Margie said, uh, you know, Pauline, I, I, I would feel really much better if you came with me to visit a friend of mine. And I was like, Seriously, <laughs> like I, Margie, I just can't. Margie, really, everything's okay. And I will never forget her saying to me, just do this last thing for me. And I thought, oh, fuck, all right, I can, I can fit this in. I can squeeze it in. So she took me and uh, <laughs> she took me to a woman named Lynn. And I, I remember 
you know, it was dark out. And I remember um, there was that little light in front of the door, and I saw the plate that said psychological services. And I was like, okay, I can't, I can't do this. I can't, like, it's, I, I made the decision. Like, I can't, right? So I go in there. She drops me off. And Lynn sits me down and she's like, so, and she was, you know, one of those people who's just so like welcoming, like you just want to pour mm. into her arms. And, and she had this like butter soft, like couch that you just would sink into. And, and I felt so warm and, and safe. And she was like, uh, so, you know, Margie says that, you know, that you're not, you're not doing so well. And that, that there's something maybe going on. What's going on? And I was like, nothing, nothing's going on. Nothing. And Lynn said the words that changed my life. She said, okay, tell me about nothing. And in 30 seconds, bleh, I just like everything that I just told you, I was like, and then, and then, and then, and I, I remember I was looking down while I was saying it all. And when I looked up, the look on her face was like, holy shit. And that woman convinced me to see her for free twice a week for months because I was, you know, obviously I had the excuses, right? I don't have the money. I don't have the, blah, blah, blah. and she was like, no, just come and just, and it was just step by step. And slowly I, I saw a way out. I saw that it didn't have to be the way that I had thought. Right. Um, but wow, do I credit her for, for everything. And, and I think today, and not that this has all been lollipops and, you know what I mean, mm -hmm. like my whole life. But when I think today of everything that has just been wow, that I honestly, I would have given up on. I would have, you know, it just like I, I, I wish there was a way to really communicate that to other people. But you cannot see you you can't see the future like especially when you're in mm -hmm. that bunny hole right yeah. you can't you can't even a, a friend once said and it's to just me, annoying when people are telling you you're going to get through it, <laughs> it you know etc etc et right. it's like oh fuck Buck off up right exactly you know this the sun'll come out tomorrow right and you're like fuck the sun like i i i totally get that and yet you know it's i i am a um a casa a coin appointed special advocate for kids in the foster care. And I have this 17 year old right now. And honestly, I, they gave her to me at 13 because she was me or, she, or I should say I was her. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's very similar kind of shit. And it just kind of underscores that the importance of having someone there who's there for you, who's not getting paid. I'm a volunteer. Um, but by the same token, you can try to tell someone whatever, and it's not until they're ready, right? Mm -hmm. to, they can't. And, you know, and, and that's, that's a shame and makes me sad on, on several mm -hmm. levels. But by the same token, you know, I did everything for my little sister, um, especially, you know, I helped raise her. I, when she became schizophrenic, I mean, I was her, her bank, her therapist, her, like everything. It didn't matter. It, it didn't matter because 
you cannot rescue another person. You just can't. And it's really tough to see people go through things. It's so hard watching people just stand at the water trough dying of thirst. Right. It's right. so hard. Right. And you know you've been there, right? And you're like, let me help. You, you can't. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't know. So I write. <laughs> yeah. And the the other thing that that's <clears throat> I think really important, and the Lynn, the therapist mm. that you went to see, is and I hate this term; it's so fucking new agey. But holding space for somebody, just listening and validating their their pain, yeah. which can get complicated when somebody's draining you. Yes, you know it's all so fucking complicated. Yes, but yes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I will, um, you know, there were times when I would say to Lynn, I just fucking want you to tell me what to do because I couldn't, like, I couldn't think anymore. Like, I just mm -hmm. couldn't think my way out. What I know to be true is there came a point. Now, I saw her for over a decade, and there came a point when I'm sitting there with Lynn and I'm going through a whole bunch of things as usual. And she said the second thing that just, whoa, knocked me out. She said, Paulina, when are you going to stop wishing for a better past? Because it's never going to happen. And I was like, holy fuck. Like, and, and I say that because holding space for people is beautiful and and you need it and yet there are times when it it helps to actually say hey you know what i mean wake try up try this right right <laughs> i mean it's it's really tough because it's it's a balance and you never know right. what's the right mix right it's sort of like the the psychiatric drugs, right? What's the right cocktail for this person? So you know? much is just trial and error, trial and, error. And, yep. and patience. Yep, yep. And yep. self compassion. You can yep. never go wrong with self compassion right. and patience. Right. And the, right. No matter what it is, healing from trauma. Uh, you know, trying to find a way to manage a mental illness. Right. Uh, yeah, right. it's yeah. it's so hard. I'm just. Uh, overwhelmed by what a beautiful soul you are <laughs> really truly could and you I, say that again no <laughs> i am truly overwhelmed by what a beautiful soul you are wow thank you there are a lot of times i don't feel it um there i still have my own demons um you know all growing up i had my own voices and I struggled and was this normal? Was this that? Was this, you know, what is it? I still have those voices in my head and I have to remind myself that I'm the boss of them. They're not the boss of me. Are they, are they voices that sound like they are physical voices or is it just thoughts? No, it's your, it's your own kind of like, um, the like, mean voice in your head. Exactly. Okay. Like, who the hell me, do you big, think you are? Right. right? Big difference between yes. that and thinking yes. you hear physical yes. voices. Yes. A very big difference. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I fully admit I am, I'm judgy, judgy. I am, um, 
I am the, you know, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to, you know what I mean? I'm going to put that round peg in the square hole. Like I have my own still demons and things that I am working on. <laughs> so so it, it is hard when someone says to you, you know, you're such a beautiful soul and you're like, shit, if you really knew me, you wouldn't, mm-hmm. you wouldn't think well, that. Well, I didn't say, <laughs> Paulina, you're perfect. You're superhuman. <laughs> See, now I'm going to home and cry about that. That'll yeah. do the thing I say to my husband. He yeah. said I wasn't perfect <laughs> yeah, out of everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, who is perfect, Nobody. right? Nobody. And, and they Nobody. would be so fucking annoying to be around. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Very true. You know, it's um, to me, it's interesting how how life really does kind of serve up what you need mm-hmm. if you can sit and be okay, right, with mm-hmm. whatever comes. I the things that I learned so far in my little journey is, you know, I I grew up with it was either um, it was black or white, it was all or nothing. It was you are a virgin or a whore, right? You are a predator. Or your prey, and and actually that first book, um, the S word, man, I started that book, and it was going to be the tell all, right? I'm going to tell the priest, and I'm going to talk about the cop, and all this stuff, all the people who did me wrong. Took me ten years to write that book, and in the ten years that it took me to do it, suddenly I was like, not even suddenly, ten years, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, everybody has a a dark and a light side and Mm -hmm. even me right and everybody's bringing something to the table that they themselves have not healed right and and not to excuse anybody but honestly that book became a book of like redemption and forgiveness mostly for me Mm -hmm. but then for other people and then the new book committed um i am super surprised at the number of people who have sent me letters, emails, um, that they too experiencing the same kinds of things and have never told anybody or never thought, you know, the big one was, you know, wanting your mother dead or, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, people cannot, it's very taboo and it is very not understandable that you can love somebody and want them dead at mm-hmm. the same time. So, you know, the things that I, thank God, have learned is that, you know, I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to know it all. I, you know, I can be at times play the virgin, play the whore. Like it, you can, it's a whole spectrum. And mm-hmm. I, if we could make that okay and embrace that mm-hmm. wow how much farther would we be and 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 how how awesome would it feel not to feel like you're doing something wrong or you're a mistake the the freedom of letting go of perfectionism is mind blowing we never imagine that it's related to our resentment of people, places, and things. But when we put the pressure on ourselves to do things perfectly, how are we not going to get pissed off? Because everybody and everything seems to be in our way rather yep. than just as it is. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I, 
And I, I am super grateful because of all the magical things that have come in my life. One of them, you know, I was telling you about my husband and, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't get married until I was 45 in great part because I thought to myself, I did it twice. I couldn't bear if a kid of mine came out and had schizophrenia, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't think I can do it again. So I was like, no, no marriage, you know, no, nothing. The fact that I, all I wanted was the ride on the back of a Harley. That was on my bucket list. Mm-hmm. The fact, you know, the joke is I got the Harley and the hog. I get this guy, but what's fascinating to me is, you know, my whole life, I was judged across the board, judged by others, judged by myself. I end up with a guy who is so nonjudgmental, and it was like the next level of what I needed to learn, like that somebody could love me and not judge me. Without no me needing what I to did. do anything. Yes. Just totally. because I am. Yeah. Flaws I mean, and all. Right. I hope he doesn't listen to this and then he's like, wait, <laughs> I, what am I doing? <laughs> exactly. But but really, you know, I don't know. Just, I I I hate the word when people are like, I'm so blessed. I, because I'm like, what, what? So God's not blessing anybody else? Like what? But honestly, there are times when I just think to myself, okay, you know, mm-hmm. whatever is out there. Like I, you know, thank you for... Thank you. I try to be like, thank you for whatever, mm-hmm. right? Because look at the, the that check that came, right? Because of the salmonella poisoning. Are you kidding me? Like, if like when when I was in the hospital, I'm thinking of you know cursing God and you know why? Sure. But look what happens. Like, like we we just don't know, right? Mm-hmm. And how much easier it is if you just love what is kind of thing, you know, the Byron Katie kind of line. So. That's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> well, I really, really enjoyed our conversation, and I'm so glad that uh, our our paths crossed. Mm-hmm. And um, your book, most recent book, is called Committed. Um, do you have a website where people can go find out more about you? I do. Um, it is madnesstomagic.com, and they can find everything there. And we'll put the links to all that stuff in the, awesome. in the show notes. Thank you. Paulina. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really, really love talking to her. It's also nice to hear the Chicago dialect. Makes me makes me a little homesick. Um, she brought me some homemade uh, marinara, marinara, however you pronounce it. So tasty. So tasty. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a woman who calls herself That's Not Chocolate. She identifies as straight. She's in her 40s, uh, says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. She's never been sexually abused. Um, she is has been emotionally abused and not sure if she's been physically abused. She writes, I'm a child of immigrants, so there is that East Asian cultural component to everything. Physical abuse, I checked, not sure, but I'm not sure that I would say I was physically abused. My middle uncle would beat us, but I, right there, would beat us, but I'm not sure that was physical abuse. But I never felt like this was physical abuse. I could understand why I was being beat. That is irrelevant. 
The punishment may not have fit the crime, but I knew what the crime was. He would hit us with his open hand most often, but he would also use belts, sticks, etc. There were times when he would open-handed slap one of us in the face. Not me, though I witnessed it. He was always yelling when he hit us. I don't remember feeling scared when a beating was imminent. I felt defiant or apathetic, as in, yeah, I did that. I don't think it deserves a beating, but go ahead. Emotional abuse? The emotional abuse was certain. My father is a bully and would intermittently but regularly tell me that I was stupid and wouldn't amount to anything because I am a girl who can't even do math. If my mother was present, she would just stand quietly by as he berated me. I do not consciously remember anything prior to age six. I remember snatches of that time through dreams. When the memories come forth, uh, when I dream, they are of being left behind, left alone as a child younger than six. I remember being afraid to cry in front of family, mothers, sisters. Uh, My father left a long time ago. The thought of expressing such uncomfortable emotions in front of them today makes me anxious and fearful. As an older child, 8, 9, 10, I would ask my mother why she didn't leave my father. I was too young to understand that a move like that was too devastating for her. My father also withheld his affection when he wasn't pleased with you. Sometimes he would emphasize this by showing affection to another child in my presence. Wow. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I love my father. He taught me wonderful skills would tell me wonderful stories of his travel and could be very warm. Some of the best moments I remember was when he was teaching me something and I was doing well. He would praise me and hug me and we would laugh. Or when he would come back from a trip and tell me about where he went, what it was like, and what he ate. Sometimes he would bring me a gift from that place. I love my mother. She's gentle, kind, patient, loyal, and warm. A few years ago, she and I took a trip. A rap song came on the radio, and she said she liked it. I looked at her in surprise, and we laughed at the same time at my reaction. When I was sick as a child, she would tend to me. Her physical warmth and her touch were the epitome of comfort. Darkest Thoughts On occasion, I contemplate what it would be like to to slide a large blade into my body, both my own and that of another. Darkest Secrets I have been a bully. When I was seven, I was told to watch over a boy younger than one. Either That's either younger than one or younger than I. Yeah, younger than I. He might have been three. I believe it was the son of a family friend. I would torture him psychologically by having him stand on the dining room chair and tilt it backwards. It frightened him. I wasn't going to let him fall. I just wanted to see him cry. The sense of power was intoxicating. I bully my mother. I yell at her explosively over the phone. Then I attack her by calling her repeatedly until she picks up. Then I go cold and withhold my affection and stop any contact by ignoring her. Things that have been done to me are more difficult to dredge up. The memories are fuzzy at best if they are accessible to my conscious mind at all. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Situations where I use my sexuality and body to dominate others, mostly adult men, but sometimes women too. I entice, seduce, and make them want to be with me even after the act is completed. Sometimes the fantasy is about a middle-aged man who does not take care of himself, in parentheses, overweight, uh, hairy, greasy, 
and he fucks me or he and all his friends like him fuck me. Thinking about that makes me feel dirty, powerful, dark, and vindicated. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? My partner boyfriend. I'd like to say I'm scared. I'm frightened of the thing that lives inside me. I'm scared that I can seem to keep in check like before. I wonder if she means I can't. Uh, I'm terrified that people will find out and leave me. What, if anything, do you wish for? To be free from the thing inside my head and heart. To stop hurting my mother. To have strong, warm connection to my mother and sisters. Have you shared these things with others? I choose the things I feel safer about to share and test the person receiving the information. If I feel they do not understand or try to fix me or pity me, etc., then I shut down. If they do not understand the darkness, abandonment, loneliness, fear, etc., I shut down. The vulnerability and amount of energy it takes to share these things is very taxing. I do not have the ability to be there for the listener, to explain things to the listener, to defend how I feel in my neuroses. How do you feel after writing th- these things down? Hollow. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Our pasts have left indelible marks on us. We carry and show them every day. Despite this fact, we are not our past. We can recognize the strengths, smarts, and wherewithal that carried us through that time, that helped us survive. We can take that strength that is still there to love ourselves and, as I heard on episode 359, to be our own hero. Thank you so much for that, man. You went really, really deep. And that, to me, is what makes a survey so compelling and and I think helpful for other people to hear because no matter what our battle is, no matter what it is inside us, the demon driving the bus, uh, it's, we feel alone. We feel like we're worse than other people and we're un, unworthy of love, but we are worthy of love. And I hope you find a way to begin to, to process that pain and to, to start to dissipate some of that anger because I, I have the feeling that the pain is related to the anger. This is from the Back in Time survey filled out by AJ, and she writes, uh, in the hospital with my alcoholic father breathing on a ventilator in a coma after drunkenly crashing his motorcycle into a parked car and killing himself. He was dead at the scene when the ambulance arrived but was revived after nearly 15 minutes with no pulse. I wish I could warn myself that him being a, quote, miracle and surviving will be much harder to deal with than him dying and that being and that being the end of his life. People can help you deal with loss, but they cannot help me fix the already broken relationship with my father that has now become impossible to even solve. I would tell myself that although my dad will survive, Tonight is the night he dies in my heart and is no longer my father at all. That is fucking heavy. And I never thought about something like that. That, that, is, that is something to contemplate. But uh, it sounds like you're taking care of yourself. Or at least I hope you are. 
This is from the same survey filled out by Anne. She writes, when I first heard you talk about this survey, I assumed you meant the common, often effective therapeutic technique of going back in time to your younger self to comfort them during a difficult or traumatic time, which made me think about when I was 12 and my eating disorder started. The eating disorder I still struggle with today and that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. And though I believe that self-compassion is a true and necessary path to recovery, I'm forced to admit that if I went back in time to that 12-year-old girl, I'd take her by the shoulders and shake her violently, yell at her, tell her, stop it, listen to people, get help, do you know what this is? Do you know what all of the, where all of this leads to? Ruin and misery, stop this now, you selfish, stupid little shit. I fantasize about this often and even feel some pleasure at imagining heavy tears sliding down her face as I flick my cigarette at her. A specter of the future that she must avoid at all costs. Her life is ahead of her, and I can't get back the wasted years. So where most people have a cathartic, beautiful moment where they get to hug their child self, I think I need to get back into therapy. I think therapy would be awesome for you. And I'm a little baffled by the wanting to flick the cigarette at her. But thank you for sharing that. This is from the Back in Time survey filled out by Mariana. She writes, I would go back to when I was eight, when I first began hating myself and my shyness. I would tell myself that although I don't see it yet, being shy is a gift in and of itself that I shouldn't fight it and certainly should not hate myself for it. I would try to explain that my shyness is a manifestation of me trying to protect myself and that's nothing to be ashamed of. I would try to explain that my early childhood experiences made me feel unsafe and that was out of my control but that I should trust myself and listen to my body. I would also tell myself not to fear animals, that fearing them is a waste of time. That animals can be loving and affectionate and are rarely as dangerous as I perceive them to be. Thank you for that. This is a happy moment filled out by slowly rotting banana. And uh, she writes, I keep in touch with a former professor of mine who has profoundly impacted my life. One day I felt compelled to reach out to her and we agreed to meet up later that night to go on a walk together. Her background is in philosophy and psychology, and I work in a helping profession, so our topics of conversation are almost always thought-provoking. And then parentheses, God, that felt pretentious to write, but it feels true to me. But this time, our discussion was less about abstract ideas about goodwill and more about the utter exhaustion this kind of work leads to. We talked about how fucked up the world is and how tiresome it is to try to make it better. We talked about how we feel tempted to say fuck it and just walk away from it all. I felt so seen. It was as if she was experiencing the exact same emotions as I was. To share the same nuanced feelings with someone felt like floating on a fucking cloud. It didn't matter that we were despairing. It mattered that we understood each other. It was like standing before a tsunami, knowing it will swallow you whole. But you're standing next to someone you love deeply, who loves you back, who gets you, and who sees you. And having that connection makes it all worth it, even in the end. Wow, that is so beautiful. 
It is so beautiful. And that, to me, describes the power of, of support networks, whether it's a support group or group therapy or even just a trusted friend that we can be vulnerable and honest with. This is from the Back in Time survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Remarks. And he writes, I go back to when I was 14. My bipolar mother and I were literally homeless. The family member we were living with died and his house was claimed by the city for back property taxes. I lost many of my belongings because we didn't get all our stuff moved out of the house before they put padlocks on the doors. I would say to 14-year-old me that this is not normal. It's okay to feel like your life is a mess. It's okay to feel something, anything. Don't you shove it all down and ignore it. One day things will get better, but you're going to have to deal with this shit before you can move on. You don't have to be the strong one all the time. You're still a kid. Thank you for that. Wow, I can't imagine what that must have been like. Fuck. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself washing down the antidepressant with a tall glass of red. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s. Says she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. When I was six years old, my mother's husband started molesting me. He controlled everything we would do, what we ate and how we ate it, how we spent our money and our time. He would get aggressively and emotionally abusive if we ever strayed from the plans he had specifically made for us. This behavior carried on until I was 12 years old and in late primary school, realizing that the things he would do to me weren't happening to other children around me and that I didn't want it to continue. I had a deep sense of shame in even thinking about the things he would do and say to me and felt that talking to anyone about it would literally cause the world to explode. One day in class, my teacher decided to base the lesson around self-reflection and asked each of us to write down a situation where we had felt happy and a situation which made us sad or upset. I had no happy memories to write about and simply saw a chance to tell someone about this awful feeling that I had that something was not right. It took all of my willpower to sharpen my pencil and put down to words just exactly what had happened to me. I wrote, I didn't like when my stepdad touched me. And I didn't erase what I had written. I handed it to my teacher, who kept me after class, to ask my permission in calling the authorities. The events that follow are blurry, and I can't remember exact details, but my mother was asked to remove me from the house and to never have him contact me again. I was taken to many counseling sessions provided by the court system in which I was asked to describe specific things that he would do to me and how long this behavior had been going on And when I would not reply because I couldn't remember these events due to my six-year-old brain protecting itself, the counselor would ask, are you sure this happened, sweetie? He was successfully sentenced to one year in prison due to the large amount of child pornography found on his computer, but was let out early on good behavior. My mother divorced him and we were forced to move countries and start a new life where he couldn't find us. My mother was concerned about my behavior after all this happened because I seemed to have no emotional response whatsoever and the only mood I was ever in was, quote, okay. 
During my first year of university, I was 17 years old. In my first relationship with a boy a year older than me and started doing drugs for the first time. I didn't like alcohol as I would regularly have panic attacks whenever I felt out of control. And I didn't really like the feeling of smoking weed as it made me paranoid and anxious. However, I continued to do these things because I felt it was the thing I should be doing at 17 or 18. And I should, quote, have fun. It took two years for my mental state to completely spiral out of control. And after countless anxiety attacks that would be so physically overwhelming, I would throw up. I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety, depression, and PTSD. I'm 22 years old now and have been taking antidepressants for three years. I've recently begun to remove the dense cloud that seemed to distance me from childhood, and I often recall memories that I previously had never experienced. In these moments, I struggle to stay present and often completely dissociate out, out of the moment. It takes me a few days to process these memories, but in listening to your podcast and recently signing up for better help, I finally feel safe in the knowledge that I am not alone and that help is just a click away. Thank you, Paul. You are an incredible person, and I wholeheartedly appreciate all that you do. Any positive experiences with the abusers? He would often buy me nice things, expensive musical instruments and clothes that I didn't really like, but he liked on me. He would talk to me about what I did at school, and if kids were ever mean to me, he would be the one to comfort me. This is called grooming, apparently. Darkest thoughts. I often think about the fact that what he would do to me felt good, and I knew deep down it was wrong and awful, and I didn't want it to happen again, but the most fucked up thing is that it felt good. That is that is the the thing that fucks with us the most, that those of us that are, are survivors, is the arousal, you know, that our brain, our soul, and our body can experience two completely different things at the same time. Darkest secrets. When I was about 10 years old, I would stay with my father every second weekend. He met a woman who had three kids, and one of them was a 16-year-old boy who would often try to molest me. I never told anyone about it, and I worry that I wasn't the only one he would do it to. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. The only porn that ever seems to get me excited is based around degradation and rape scenes. Since listening to you talk about the consequences of trauma and abuse and how normal these feelings are to be experiencing, I've been able to accept these feelings as being a result of my experience and to let go a lot of a lot of the shame I had previously felt towards this topic. High fucking five. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? None of this is your fault, and you will get through this and be stronger because of it. I would say that to both my mother and to 12-year-old me. What, if anything, do you wish for? Due to the way I was raised and having never felt that my feelings were valid or important, I struggle with having the confidence in telling people exactly how I feel. I wish for the confidence to do and say how I feel and not how I should. Boy, is that a profound profound statement and so true so true have you shared these things with others this morning i told my boyfriend of nine months he kissed my eyes as the tears fell out of them and told me that he is so proud that i had the confidence to do something about it that he will always respect and take care of me and that he will be here for me no matter what i'm so overwhelmed with this response 
and the weight that lifted after talking about it, that the minute he left, I had to open my computer and fill out this survey. (laughs) How do you feel after writing these things down? Every time I talk about the things that have happened to me, the tiniest bit of sunlight escapes through the dark cloud placed over my childhood, and the dense weight on my shoulders dissipates slightly. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Take your arms around your front and hug yourself. Somehow, if I do this and hold it long enough, this hug seems to get right down to little six-year-old me, and I feel like no matter what will happen next, I've got my own back. Any suggestions to make the podcast better? I listen to your podcast religiously and tell my friends far too often how much this has helped me, but if someone could please start a GoFundMe to get Paul over to Australia, that would be fantastic. I'd absolutely love to see a live interview or even be interviewed if you had time. Other than that, keep doing what you're doing because you're making such a difference in people's lives. Well, thank you. Thank you for those those nice words and for this beautiful, beautiful survey that you filled out. And you do sound like you'd be an awesome guest. And I, getting to Australia is definitely on my bucket list. Definitely. So yeah, you want to get that GoFundMe thing? I will definitely be up for going to Australia. And then finally, this is uh, from the Love Survey, filled out by No One Understands Marmite is a Part of National Pride. And they write, I love being part of the weird pentagon that makes up the network of mine and my neighbor's back gardens. I can sit on the end of my bed, gaze out the window, listening to this podcast, and see my elderly neighbor in her brightly colored clothes pottering around, watering her begonias, and the cluster of students sitting by disposable barbecues in front of broken sheds and red brick walls covered with ivy. I'm eye-level with the treetops, so I can see all the songbirds going about their business, preening and flirting with other birds. I love the tumbled-down, semi-abandoned building over the back and the people burning building materials in a trash can fire directly opposite. I love wood pigeons. I love how overly large and fat and cumbersome they look and how they're often in pairs, knowing that they couple up for life. I love how they are berry eaters who insist on perching on spindly branches that can't support their weight while they eat, and they have to flap their wings frantically to stay balanced. Most of all, I love the sound they make when they take off flying. It's this strange, whirruping hoot that makes them sound like they have been greatly offended by something, and now they are taking their leave of you. I love that even though my backyard had all the grass removed and pebbles put in its place, which is ugly, nature always figures out a way to force its way through the cracks, and now my yard is awash with verdant green leaves and blue flowers that are too strong and too resilient to be vanquished. I love that I can read a really good book and still know that I could write something just as good as that too if I put in the time, effort, and patience. I love that even someone as beset with insecurity as me about literally everything can still feel confident in my talents and optimistic about my ability to see that talent through to wherever it might take me. I have to say, man, you definitely have a gift. These are so... The, the observations and the, and the way that you express these is really beautiful. 
I love that I can go out into the street in my pajama bottoms, unwashed, and as my worst self to pick com- to pick up comfort food wherever I want and notice that every fucker around me is just as unwashed, ungroomed, and badly dressed because we're all basically dirt poor around here with no fucks given. I love that every day I think about the eight months I spent living in Vietnam. I think how crazy it is that I did that against all odds and how strange it was to be in that place, how different everything was and how it was terrible and fantastic and overwhelming and freeing all at once. I love that I will have my memories, hopefully for many decades. I love that though time is passing and all those moments get further away, little things bring back strong memories of that mad and maddening time of my life. I love that memories never truly die. They just get filed filed away somewhere out of sight and come out again when least expected. I love Marmite. It's a salty, sticky, black tar-like substance which goes on toast and is so inexplicable to anybody who is not British. Not even Australians understand it. And they have their own version, which is not so black, sticky, or tar-like, and that is unacceptable. I love the surveys. When I first started listening to the podcast, I was all like, I don't need this. Give me the dark stuff. But I've grown to love hearing about all the wonderfully, weirdly relatable, strangely specific stuff that people love. It reminds me of all the creativity and individuality of the world in a culture where people are so guarded for fear of being thought weird. When I identify with something, it helps me notice those same things in my own life. And that makes my world brighter, fuller, and richer. I love being reminded of just how many things I do love because sometimes I forget. That might be my favorite group of loves ever. God, those were awesome. Thank you for that. And thank you guys for uh, for listening, hanging in for the last 110 minutes. And uh, thanks to Paulina. I'm running out of shit to say, so let's wrap this fucker up. Huh? Let's get you back to your worrying about the future. If you're out there and you're struggling, you're not alone. You're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.